0: church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We're glad you're here today, and if you would, please take out your Bibles and turn in them to the book of Ephesians and chapter number 2, Ephesians 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible and turn to page 151 in the back, and you would be at Ephesians chapter 2. We've been involved in a series on Amazing Grace, and we've talked about the great anthem, the song Amazing Grace, and you remember how the first stanza of that goes, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, a wretch like me. You know, in English, that word wretch is wretch with a W. It's not wretch, R-E-T-C-H, which is a verb and something you do when you get sick. Uh, this is a different kind of a wretch. Let me ask you this question. Do you know any wretches personally? Could it be that that you are a wretch, that I am a wretch? I mean, what is a wretch? It's interesting how we sing things and we don't really have an idea what we're singing. "'Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me.'" What is a wretch? Is a wretch a murderer, a drug dealer, a human trafficker? Well, if you look up the word in a dictionary, it basically has two meanings to it. A wretch, first of all, is someone who is miserable, and a wretch, second of all, is someone who is wicked. Wicked. Both those ideas are inherent in the Word, miserable and wicked, someone who is a worker of iniquity, someone who is sinful. And that is really the base point of John Newton's reference when he says, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, a a sinner like me who is miserable. See, in God's eyes, we all qualify as a wretch. We're involved in these series of messages that we began this fall under the series title Amazing Grace. And we have said that at times grace is misunderstood, frequently it is underappreciated. But grace distinguishes biblical Christianity from every other religious system. And we have set forth a very clear goal for us in this series and that goal is that we would learn to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And we have shared with you a definition of grace. Do you remember what that is? What is the definition of grace? It's God's generous, undeserved goodness. Grace is a free, undeserved gift. It's not based on what we do, it's not based on what we promised, it's not based on our performance, it's not based on our merit, it is unearned, it is undeserved, it is unmerited, and that, men and women, is what makes it amazing. Now, as we continue our series on Amazing Grace today, I've titled today's message, The Amazing Grace of Salvation, Part 1 which is a little clue I'm dropping, that part number two, Lord willing, will be next week. We want to begin this week to look at the amazing grace of salvation. And if you have your Bibles open to Ephesians 2, I would like to read two verses that are familiar to many of us. That is verses 8 and 9. So follow along as I'm reading. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. What we're going to do today is to take a little journey, and it's going to be a journey into some of the darker sides of spiritual truth. And I want to encourage you to hang in there as we look a little bit at the dark side, because this is what's so important. It's against the backdrop of that darkness that the brightness of grace can clearly be seen. And we're going to see again today that God's grace is all over the place, even as we venture into some of the darker areas of spiritual truth. Now, we have a a dual plan today. We basically are going to look at two things. The first thing we're going to look at is grace and the law. The second thing we're going to look at is grace and works. And it's very important that we spend a few moments looking at these two things because they cause a lot of confusion in our day. So we're going to look at grace and the law. Secondly, we're going to look at grace and works. So let's begin by examining this area of grace and the law. Paul writes something very interesting in the book of Romans in chapter 6 and verse 14. He writes this statement, you are not under law, but under grace. You're not under law, but under grace. And that raises some questions. How do law and grace intersect together? What was God's plan when it came to law and grace? And how does all this work together? So in order to deal with that as we look at grace and the law, I want to look at two things in the next few moments. Number one, I want to look at the background of the law, and secondly, I want to look at the spiritual aim of the law. We're going to just give you a little refresher course on the background of the law, and then we want to zero in on the spiritual aim of the law, and that is an arena that causes mass confusion for many people they don't understand the spiritual aim of the law. This is a key foundational truth to Christianity, and we want to clarify it. So the first thing as we talk about grace and the law that we want to look at is the background of the law. By the way, when the Bible talks about the law, its primary reference is to what we call the Mosaic Law, or the law as it was given to Moses. And the Mosaic Law was given by God, to Moses, for the nation of Israel. And the interesting thing is that the very giving of the law to Israel was an act of grace on God's part. Andy Stanley, in his book on the grace of God, does an excellent job of unpacking and explaining this. You remember when the law was given? It comes after the nation has their exodus from Egypt and it comes before they go into the promised land that had been promised generations before to Abraham. So after they exit Egypt, before they go into the promised land, God gives to them the law. Now, last time we talked about Joseph, remember, and his family uh, being down in Egypt. Well, the law comes 430 years after Joseph and his family first resided in Egypt. So 430 years later, the law is given. And for three centuries, the people of Israel have been slaves in Egypt. They didn't start out that way. Joseph was second only to the Pharaoh. But after about 130 years or so, they became slaves. They were enslaved by the Egyptians. That went on for three centuries and as slaves, if you remember the accounts, uh, they would have to do things like build bricks out of mud and straw. They were laborers. They were slaves. They were toting and they were lifting and they were building and, and they were suffering under the Egyptians for 300 years. And after 450, 430 years, after what started out as one family group, had now grown to several million people... And God was using Moses to deliver them from slavery in Egypt, to move them out of there and then begin to move them into the promised land. But if you think about it for a moment, they had never run a nation. They had never governed. They had been nothing more than manual slaves for generations. They knew no laws except the laws of the Egyptians, which were very pagan and very cruel. In fact, their laws allowed openly for people to be enslaved and and vitally mistreated. But Israel didn't know anything other than the Egyptian law. Now think about it for a moment. You take all of these slaves who've been generational slaves for a number of years, three centuries, and now you're going to bring them out and say, we're going to go over here to this land and, and, and you're going to be a nation. God could have allowed them... To struggle for decades. Remember, there were no lawyers, no one trained in law. They could have struggled for decades trying to figure out some sort of a law on their own. But in God's generous goodness, He gave the nation of Israel the law. And it involved all kinds of stuff. There were laws on sanitation, there were laws on property rights, there were laws on marriage. There were laws on criminal behavior and punishments. Several aspects to the law that God gave to them. There was a civil aspect and a ceremonial aspect and a moral aspect. And the law that God gave to them as a nation did some things that the Egyptian law never did. It elevated the status of women. It elevated the status of servants. It, it, it had laws in there on how you should treat foreigners in your land. I wonder why he threw that in. What have they been seeing for hundreds of years? Mistreatment. The law included things like this, as you're getting ready to become a nation. Honor your father and mother and you will live long in the land. God was saying to them, if you will revere your, your parents, it's a key to a stable society. God said, you're not to murder, you're to honor life. You're not to commit adultery, you're to honor marriage as a nation. You are not to steal, you are to honor property as a nation. And as God gave to them, and in His generous goodness, this law, it included guidelines for a sacrificial system to address the nation's spiritual needs. And that was a reminder to them that they had a need for forgiveness. They had a need for grace. Part of what the law said was that you need to take one of your best animals and sacrifice it. See, take one of your best animals because that teaches you that sin costs something. And then you are to sacrifice that animal, which underscores the fact that sin brings consequences with it. Now, what was inter- is interesting is if you went out there and you particularly talked about the law in the Bible and you just took a survey out on the street, or certainly if you took a survey inside the church at large, uh, was the law a good thing or was the law a bad thing? The prevailing idea that people would have is that the law is inherently bad. But that's not what the Bible teaches. When Paul was writing to Timothy in his first letter 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 8 he says this he says we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully the law is good if one uses it properly the law is good if one uses it as God intended So all we're saying here is that the giving of the law was an act of grace by God. It was His generous goodness to the nation. But the second thing we want to look at is what was the spiritual aim of the law? What was God's goal for the law in the spiritual realm of life? Well I want to refer you back to 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 8 and the connected verse in verse 9. It says this, "We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for the righteous but for those who are rebellious." Really what Paul was saying is the law in terms of its spiritual aim and spiritual purpose, it was designed to convince people like you and like me that we are sinners. That's the aim of it all. Turn a little bit to the left in your Bibles to the book of Galatians and chapter number 3. And I want to look at a couple of verses in Galatians chapter 3. First, let's look at verse 21. Paul writes, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Is there some kind of a conflict here, he's saying? May it never be. That's very strong language. Absolutely, positively, no way, never. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Is there some sort of conflict there? Absolutely not. I like the way the New Living Translation translates verse 21. It says, if the law could have given us new life, we could have been made right with God by obeying it. But that was never the aim, Well, what was the spiritual aim of the law? Well, verse 24 is going to answer it for us. Therefore, it says, verse 24, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Paul says the law is our tutor the word in the original is "paidagogos." P-A-I-D-A-G-O-G-O-S. A paidagogos. He says the law is a paidagogos. You say, "Well, what was a paidagogos?" Literally, the term means a child conductor or a child supervisor. And a a paedagogos was something that was very prominent in the culture of the day. Someone who was a paedagogos was responsible for the guidance and development of a child that was not their own. They were someone that you hired to help guide and develop your child, to watch over them. They were the super nanny of the day a pedagogos was, if you would, a super nanny. And they most often would take charge of a child between the ages of 6 to 16 years old. And a pedagogos had a responsibility to guide the development of that child. Now, there's a couple things I want you to notice about a pedagogos First of all, this was a temporary role, not a permanent one, but for a period of time. Secondly, What they were charged with was to guide and direct a child where the parents wanted the child to go. Temporary role, guiding and directing the child to where the parents wanted it to go. And the law, he says, was our pedagogos. It was a temporary role that it was to play and it was to guide and direct us to where God wanted us to go. And what does it say there? The law has become our tutor, our paedagogos, to lead us where? To Christ, so that we may just be justified by faith. The role of the paedagogos was to point out that we needed a rescuer. And that rescuer is Jesus Christ. Turn with me a few books to the left in your Bible to the book of Romans in chapter number 3, Romans chapter number 3. By the way, the word grace appears in the book of Romans more than any other book in the Bible. But in particular, I want you to notice Romans chapter 3, verse 20, and the very last phrase Romans 3.20, the last phrase says, For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, the spiritual aim of the law was to point out our sinfulness. It it was to point out the precariousness of our position before a holy God its role was to point out our hopelessness. It, it just uncovers our guiltiness. It was distress our helplessness apart from a divine rescuer. And you may be sitting there thinking, okay, Bruce, I understand the concept you're communicating here, but how, how does that actually work? Well, let me just illustrate it for you. Let's take a look at the, the Ten Commandments, which, by the way, are very interesting because most people can't name the Ten Commandments. But if they are going to name them they would say well they, they mean that you're not supposed to murder, you're not supposed to commit adultery, you're not supposed to steal, you're not supposed to lie, you're not supposed to covet. And most people look at whatever they know of the 10 commandments and they think, "Yeah, I can I can I can do that. I can keep that." But Jesus comes along in the New Testament and he he uncovers a little more about the way God views this. In Matthew chapter 5 verses 21 and 22, he says that if you have any unjust anger in your heart, you are guilty of murder. And suddenly we go, whoa. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28 regarding committing adultery, he says that includes the sinful thoughts that you have. If you even lust in your mind, from God's perspective, he says, you have committed adultery. You know, we have CSI programs everywhere you can look. I don't know how many CSIs there are. There's CSI here, CSI there, on television, everywhere. Do you know that God is the original CSI? He is supernatural. He has total access to our inner thoughts. In fact, in First Samuel 16:7, it says, "The Lord looks on the heart." See, all we see is the actions that we may be performing. God goes inside; He knows what's really happening. You know those signboards that they have with that—I don't know what they call the kind of electronic sign. You know where the message sort of bleeps across the front of it? You know, ding, 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 ding. Can you imagine, honestly, what it would be like if your thought life? was projected on one of those electronic signboards wouldn't it be interesting to see what some of us are thinking about right now that, that that would be that would be flat out embarrassing wouldn't it if those thoughts were going by a lot of times i thought about what it would be like if you had one of those electronic signboards on the back of your car you know, so as you're driving around and you encounter people, whatever's going through your mind is on the, on the back of that. I'm thinking to myself, you know, that'd be really embarrassing. Some of the thoughts I have about some of the people that I run into or, or who I nearly run into because they are doing things they shouldn't be doing. And you start thinking about all that being broadcast, and you go, ooh, but God sees it all. And what that tells us is that we're all guilty, we're all sinful, we're all wretches. C.S. Lewis, in a book that he wrote called The Abolition of Man, studied the religious literature of a number of groups. He studied the religious literature of the American Indians, the religious literature of the ancient Greeks... The religious literature of the ancient Chinese, the religious literature of Christianity, and and some other groups. And he noticed something. He said that there were eight common teachings in all that religious literature. Those eight common teachings were these don't harm others with word or deed, honor your parents, be kind to siblings and, and the elderly. Be honest in all your dealings. Don't lie. Don't have sex with another person's spouse. Care for those who are weaker and put others first. See, almost those moral principles, they're very clear, they're very common among these different religious literature areas. But guess what he found out? He found out that in all of those systems, there is a clear assumption that people are going to fail to adhere to those eight core teachings. Every one of the arenas acknowledged that people are going to fall short, and therefore because you're falling short, there needs to be some kind of a compensation plan. And a lot of times people will run around and they'll say, well, you know what, I think I can keep all these things. I can be good. And they don't understand God's economy of good. Because it says in James chapter 2 and verse 10, from God's perspective, if you keep all of the law, but you fail in one point, God says, in reality, you're guilty of breaking it all. Because, see, God's standard is total perfection. And so if we violate one, from God's viewpoint, it's like violating it all. You know, we're more than likely not going to have a space program anymore in America, and that's a little disappointing to me because I grew up with the space program. Always watching that on television and and watching the interchange between whatever spacecraft was flying and the Control Center in Houston. And the the one thing you never wanted to hear during a particular flight was, Houston, we have a problem. And when we begin to see the way that God views our guiltiness, we have to conclude, Houston, we have a problem Because we violate it. It comes down to our very thoughts. By the way, Paul draws a conclusion about you and me and all of humanity in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. He says, this is God's conclusion from his viewpoint. He says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. See, God's message for all of us is that, look, you can be a good student. You can be a dedicated mom and dad. You can be an ethical businessman. You can be a charity volunteer. But in reality... You, me, all of us are violators of the standards of a holy God. Every one of us is infected by sin. There's a theological term for the state of humanity, and that term is total depravity. What total depravity means is this, that every arena of your life and my life is affected by our sin. Every atom is infected with sin. Ivan Turgenev, who lived in the 1800s, he was a Russian novelist and playwright, he said this. He said, I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible. He's basically saying this, that when you see yourself before a holy God, there's only one thing that you can conclude, and that is, I am guilty. Now, a lot of times people will try to argue with you about this, but it's, it's, if we're going to be transparent about it, it's so true. I mean, every one of us has failed to live up to God's expectations. I mean, after all, we fail to live up to our own, don't we? We fail to live up to our own expectations, let alone the expectations of God. And the dilemma gets even worse because our failure earns us something from God, and what it earns us is death. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, a slow death in this life, and an eternal death, separation from God in eternity. And so that being our problem then... How do we respond? How do we compensate for that? Well, that leads us to the second thing we want to look at today. We've looked quickly at grace and law, and now we want to look at grace and works in the few minutes that we have left. You know what a natural response is for somebody? They think like this. If my bad behavior and my bad choices put me at odds with God, if it put me on God's bad side, well, then my good behavior and my good choices will lead me to be acceptable to God or put me on God's good Side. That's why all the religious systems of the world except biblical Christianity spell salvation the same way. D-O, do. There's something that you must do to make yourself acceptable to God. You might re- remember the story in Acts chapter 16 where Paul and Silas are in jail in the city of Philippi, and you might remember that God brings this earthquake and it breaks apart the prison, and the prisoners escape. And the Philippian jailer begins to actually commit suicide because to allow your prisoners to escape was going to mean a very, very painful death for him. And basically, Paul stops him. And then the Philippian jailer asks him this question What must I blank to be saved? What goes in the blank? What must I, what was it again? What must I do to be saved? You see that's the way man responds when he learns of the dilemma. What must I do? I must have to do something. And God has always already ruled on that point. Notice Romans chapter 3 verse 20, the very first part of the verse. It says by the works of the law, the things that you do, no flesh will be justified, declared righteous in his sight. We've got a dilemma, but what God says is that there's no amount of rule-keeping that will make you acceptable to God. You see, his standards are too unattainably high, and our efforts are too deficiently low. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6, It says this, that all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, which is a very polite translation from Hebrew. Because a filthy garment referred to the menstrual rags that a woman would use during her period. And then once they were all soaked, they would just sort of toss them away. In God's view of my righteous deeds and your righteous deeds, in order to make us acceptable to Him, he says, "You know what I think of those things? They're, they're as valuable to me as a bunch of minstrel rags that are all soaked with blood over here. Turn with me back on the right to your Bible to the book of Galatians, again, we were there earlier, Galatians chapter two. and verse 16, Galatians 2:16. And I want you to notice that this whole point is emphasized three times in this verse. God knows we're slow, so he keeps repeating it. Galatians 2.16, "...nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus..." even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh, that's human beings, will be justified. We could go on and on with passages on this. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. And that word not, in the original, is in triple emphatic position. He saved us not, not, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. For by grace, we have been saved through faith. And that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one would boast. See, the, the truth is that he came down to us rather than requiring us to scale a ladder of perfection in some vain attempt to reach him. And, men and women, that is amazing grace. Amazing grace says it's not good people who get to heaven, it's forgiven people who get to heaven. And as we have shared with you several times, when you are looking to the law, to make you acceptable to God. Remember that chart that we have? You're operating under the merit principle, and the merit principle, it is that somehow as a man or a woman, I am giving these deeds to God, and then he's going to give me certain benefits of forgiveness back. But when we are looking to Jesus, then we're operating under the grace principle where Christ delivers his work on our behalf to God, and he then delivers benefits to us as men and women. There's a lot of people out there, maybe some of you are there, where you've been struggling and you're trying to be good enough to somehow get yourself into God's good graces. And you know what happens to us when we're doing that? I can remember living that life myself. You can end up becoming discouraged. You know, you have this this almost feeling of a vain attempt to scale the ladder of good, and it's hard to do that, and you become frustrated, and you can become discouraged because you keep failing to be what you think in your heart Believe in your heart you really ought to be. And what ends up with people, a lot of times they just end up totally hopeless. They give up. They say, why bother? I can never be like I should be. But I've got good news for you. The work is done. I've got good news for you. The work is done. I've got really good news for you. The work is done. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The truth is that we're all wretches in the eyes of God apart from the work of Christ. He did the work that needed to be done. That is good news. The lyrics of Reuben Morgan and Ben Fielding are so true. Everyone needs compassion, love that's never failing. Everyone needs forgiveness, the kindness of a Savior, the hope of nations. Next week, Lord willing, we'll be doing part two of our message on the amazing grace of salvation. If it's not by works, how is it? It is by grace through faith. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up because they're going to lead us in a final song of worship. And as they're coming, I just want you to know, if you are personally struggling with this idea of being good enough for God... I have a a book that I would like to give to you. It's entitled, Since Nobody's Perfect, How Good is Good Enough? It's written by Andy Stanley. And we have copies of these that are available out on the Welcome Center desk right by the mints there. And if you're just struggling with this whole idea of can I be good enough, can I be good enough, I want you to, to read through this and allow it to reinforce the principles that we've been sharing with you this morning. Let's stand up and let know, let God know how we feel about His amazing grace.